0: Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Natalie Wexler, host of the Knowledge Matters podcast, joins us to discuss the connection between knowledge building and reading comprehension. Then on the Research Minute, AMPA reports on a new study on the P-TECH high school model. All this on the Education Gadfly Show.
1: This is the Education Gadfly Show.
2: And uh, we're not doing trust falls. See, <laughs> you just haven't read the agenda closely
0: enough. Uh, <laughs> what does Gadfly say?
2: Hello, this is
0: your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now please welcome our special guest for this week, Natalie
3: Wexler. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you. Natalie is a senior contributor at Forbes, the author of The Knowledge Gap, and the host of season one of the Knowledge Matters podcast. So great to have you on the show, Natalie. And we're going to talk all about knowledge and literacy. But first, let us introduce my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Welcome back, David. Hope all is well. I hope uh, hope you're recovering from a successful trick-or-treat season there at the Griffith household.
1: It was successful, Mike. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to East Capitol Street, but it is bumping uh, around Halloween. It's uh, you got to come. It's we got a whole scene here in the nation's capital.
0: I understand people can hand out thousands of pieces of candy in that neighborhood.
1: We had live action Star Wars. We had skeletons the size of um, giants. It's it's really quite something. So. Excellent. All right.
0: Well, uh, Natalie, as I said up front, we have so much to talk about. Uh, first of all, congratulations on your podcast, which I understand you've gotten over 100,000 downloads, which is just amazing. Very impressive. I mean, look, we, we've been, you know, winging it on this podcast for 17 years. And, uh, you know, to have an upstart like you come along and crush it like that, very impressive.
3: Well, I I do very much feel like an upstart. Uh, we put that to get that podcast together. I mean, it may not look like it, but we put it together in just a few weeks, really. And uh, I'm I'm very pleased with how it turned out. I have to say, I I there were times when I thought we weren't going to be able to do it, but uh, it seems to be really reaching a lot of people, which is great.
0: Well, good. Well, let's talk about that because it sounds like there's a lot of reason for optimism here, finally, on this topic of knowledge and literacy. So let's do that on Ed Reform Update. All right. So, Natalie, I, I think our audience has probably heard us uh, talk about this over and over again, the importance of knowledge. But you you wrote a whole book about this. You talk about it all the time. What's what's your elevator speech version of why we need to make sure kids, as early as possible, are getting a real knowledge-rich curriculum if, if we want them to learn how to read?
3: Well, first, I want to say that I do stand on the shoulders of E.D. Hirsch and the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and learned a lot from him, from Don, and from, from you guys. But... Uh, You know, if anything, the situation has only gotten worse since 1987 when Hirsch wrote cultural literacy. And as he pointed out, elementary schools have not been focusing on building kids' knowledge about history, geography, science, and much of what the time that they are spending in elementary school is devoted to reading comprehension skills and strategies, things like finding the main idea, making inferences. And the theory is that if kids just get really good at those things, they'll be able to apply those skills to read and understand any text they're expected to read down the road in high school or wherever. But as cognitive scientists have known, of course, for decades, and as you guys have known, that's not how reading comprehension actually works. Um, What's more important than skill is knowledge, how much knowledge of the topic, but also general academic knowledge and vocabulary you have. And it's important to start building knowledge early in order to narrow these two kinds of knowledge gaps. So one is between kids at the upper and lower ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, essentially, because the the kids at the, it's really not about poverty so much as level of parental education. If, if you are coming from a highly educated family, you're going to pick up a lot of sophisticated knowledge and vocabulary at home. The other kids are going to rely on school for that. And if they don't start getting it early, there's this gap that that starts to grow um, between these two groups of kids. And by the time they get to high school, the gaps in their knowledge are quite significant. And this explains a lot of the, the gap in reading test scores and other signs of educational achievement. But beyond that, there's a gap at, I think, pretty much all socioeconomic levels from what I've heard, between what the high school and ultimately college curriculum, between the knowledge that that curriculum assumes and the knowledge that many kids have, they just, you know, if you have not been learning about history, geography, science, et cetera, you're going to be confused by a lot of the things you're expected to read and understand at higher grade levels. So that's my basic, ele- it was a pretty long elevator ride, but that's my speech.
0: That's right. That's the Empire State Building version of that. Yes. So that's okay. But no, very, very well said, Natalie. And. Look, we are at a moment where there's a lot of interest in the science of reading, so to speak, right? Uh, phonics getting attention This seems to go in cycles. Last time was maybe 20 years ago with reading first, and now we're back. And it's great, in my opinion, that we have uh, schools focusing again on uh, the importance of decoding and phonics and phonemic awareness in those early grades. I think some of us who also know this research on knowledge say, okay, but it's not just phonics, you know. Now that's not to say—I mean, the, the balanced literacy people would always say that too, right? Oh, it's not just phonics, you know. We also have to develop a love of reading. Well, of course, you know, but we, again that the point is that you have to do the phonics piece you have to do the phonemic awareness you have to do the decoding in those early grades but uh, if that's all you do and then especially if then you jump to this fine you know strategies and skills baloney you're going to be disappointed right And so I guess my question is, you know, is this is there a moment here? Do we have an opportunity to try to link uh, the knowledge piece to this larger science of reading? It it didn't happen in the in the National Reading Panel back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Is is there a chance today?
3: I think there's a chance. Um, I'm I'm beginning to see more signs that uh, in the media. I've seen definitions of the science of reading that don't just as they have been, mostly just say it's it's all about phonics, that also say it's about giving kids access to background knowledge. What I'm not yet seeing and what I think is crucial is to point out to teachers and the general public that teachers think they are teaching comprehension just as they have thought they were teaching phonics. And Emily Hanford came along and made it clear that even though they thought they were teaching phonics, what they were doing was not actually effective at enabling kids to decode. We need the same thing to happen on the comprehension side because schools spend far more time on comprehension than they do on decoding. And if you just say, well, there's also comprehension, or even if you just say kids also need background knowledge, a lot of educators may think, well, we're doing that because if we're throwing in some random nonfiction, oh yeah, we're we're building knowledge. But that is not enough to build knowledge. It has to be much more systematic and intentional uh, and, and coherently organized in a curriculum, and ideally a curriculum that covers both the decoding foundational skills side of reading and the knowledge building side of reading comprehension, because I think it's much easier for teachers if they don't have to juggle different programs, which is often what's happening. And, and
0: it does seem like there there are now some well-known curriculum that I think people we know and trust think are, are pretty good on the knowledge front. I mean, of course, core knowledge language arts would be one of them, but, but also wit and wisdom from great minds. I think a lot of people like EL education, um, you know, so... This is happening. Uh, we used to just kind of bemoan the fact that there was nothing on the market. Now there are things on the market, I, but I guess it still raises that question: is, is, people say, is it though scientifically based, proven in the same way that some of the phonics pieces are? So, I mean, Edie Hirsch has argued this for over thirty years that theoretically it makes a ton of sense. If you could build, uh, you know, background knowledge in kids, especially poor kids who weren't getting it at home, if you could do that in school through a knowledge-rich curriculum, it should help them improve their reading you know but have we been able to prove that that actually is the case
3: well i'd say we have more evidence than we used to but we have to understand that building knowledge it's much harder to prove an effect from that because unlike decoding I mean you can teach a kid to decode in a year or two and that kid will be decoding knowledge building if you're using standardized reading comprehension tests to determine whether it's working they're not going to they're going to be very misleading because essentially you know so you're you may be teaching kids about Greek myths, the human digestive system, all sorts of things. And you know, they're acquiring knowledge, they're acquiring vocabulary, but they get to the test and the reading passages are about the Inuit or Amelia Earhart or, you know, and they, it takes eventually, if they learn about a series of topics through a knowledge building curriculum, they will acquire the critical mass of general academic knowledge and vocabulary. And by the way, familiarity with the complex syntax of written language that will enable them to read and understand passages on topics they don't already know about. But we have evidence that it can take three, four years or possibly more before that will happen. And I know we're very impatient. We test these kids sometimes every three months using these standardized measures that only purport to test their skills at making inferences or whatever. And you, you don't see progress or you do see progress. It can be very misleading.
0: Well, we, we did have a great study that our colleague Adam Tyner and a, and a colleague of his did looking at just uh, a great federal study that had some detailed data on course uh, amount of time spent in these different grades and these different subjects sorry uh, in the early grades. And you know kids who were spending more time on social studies uh, looked like they had a significant impact on their reading comprehension. So that was an exciting, again, a piece of evidence. as you say, it's it's hard to prove at this point, but it's, uh, it's you know the pieces are are, are adding up.
3: But and I would, uh, you know, I'm doing a whole bunch of presentations these days, and I pretty much always have a slide about that study because I think it is very powerful. And I think one important aspect of it is that this extra half hour of social studies, which boosted reading, you know, was correlated with an increase in reading comprehension scores. The benefits were greatest for the kids from the lowest income families. And there were no benefits really for the kids from the highest income families, probably because they already had that knowledge and vocabulary. So what that study says to me is that extra social studies, even though, as I recall, you asked me, should we do this study? And I said, Oh, elementary social studies, it's so superficial. I don't think you're going to see any effect from it, but you did. You fortunately did not listen to me. Um, And I think, you know, this shows that that is giving kids the the ability to understand the passages on reading tests uh, and, and another factor about that study is that an extra half an hour a day on reading was not correlated with higher test scores.
0: So, David, you're I'm sure you're you know, we, I always mention your time teaching. I know it was short, but you probably had this experience, right, of having students who had this huge knowledge gap. Uh, you didn't see them until they were in high school. I don't know what's on your mind about all of this stuff. Are you optimistic that uh, that there's something elementary schools can do to to bend the curve on this?
1: Yeah, it's um, it's it's manna from heaven. I, I I'm I'm glad to hear that it's finally getting traction. I do think it's getting traction. Actually, I, I, we're hearing it from different quarters. Oh, yeah, I had ninth graders who didn't know where their continents were. Right? How can you possibly teach them world history if they, I mean it, it's World War II is meaningless if you don't know where North America and Europe are. It's just meaningless.
3: I have lots of stories from teachers like that. In fact, a kid who was doing like an AP prep course and the teacher showed him. A map of North America and South America, he said, wait a minute, South America? How can there be a South America? I mean, this is America. So, you know, it's really... uh
1: It's almost impossible to overstate. And it's hard for people, I think, to wrap their heads around if they just got this stuff when they were, I don't know, four, right? Like most of us did. I Yeah. I mean, you, you, you've you asked many of the questions I would ask, Mike. I think one question I have is just in terms of leverage, you know, Natalie, what you think are the best levers to pull, right? I've heard talk about we, we could test more in social studies, right? We could try to inject more social studies texts into ELA tests, right? Um, I don't know. We could go after. I, I, there are lots of people we could go after, right? And that never just seems to really be like the best way to move teaching practice. But I'm just curious to know what you think.
0: Or, or writing. I know you've been talking a lot, Natalie, about linking this with writing instruction.
3: Well, yeah. And um, in that connection, I think Louisiana is doing this interesting experiment that draws on both of those things. Um, they're experimenting with a new kind of reading test. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but the reading test passages are grounded in topics, and some of them are taken from texts that kids are learning about or reading as part of their curriculum. I think it's both ELA and social studies, and they're being asked to write about those those topics as well on these tests. And in many schools in Louisiana, they're um, they're adopting, you know, so the other book that I have co-authored is called The Writing Revolution. It's a method of teaching writing beginning at the sentence level in a very logical way. And in Louisiana, they have incorporated writing revolution strategies and activities into their homegrown curriculum called guidebooks. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing more data from that. Louisiana is in a, I guess, unique position because... Something like 80% of the schools in the state are using, that's the state's ELA curriculum, which which is content-rich. Other states, you know, schools are using all different curricula and covering all different bodies of knowledge, but every state has content, academic content standards, right? In social studies, in science, they may not be great, especially in social studies, but they do specify some content. Well, not always, but yes. Okay, go ahead. Not at the lower grade levels, which of course is one of the real problems, but- uh, it's better than just testing kids, purportedly just testing them on these reading comprehension skills. If you give them, if if you put passages on the reading test that are related to the, you know, topics that they're supposed to be learning about in social studies and science, a that gives teachers an incentive to actually teach those subjects, and b it it does help level the playing field if everybody's learned about. You know, Theodore Roosevelt, Thurgood Marshall, et cetera, Um, which that's one fifth grade Texas social studies standard I found, which just said all students will learn about Theodore Roosevelt, Thurgood Marshall and a woman whose name I forget who was a Hispanic state legislator. These people, there's no connection between them. So it's not ideal. Right. But at least it's content.
0: It's content. All right. Hey, we are going to need to leave it there. But if you uh, love this topic, there is a lot more at Natalie's podcast. Again, check it out. Uh, it's the uh, Knowledge Matters podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcast. Until then, Natalie Wexler, uh, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Well, thanks for having me, Mike this is, and David. This is really fun.
0: All right. Fantastic. Well, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. <laughs> Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Looking forward to seeing you and the Fordham board and the entire Fordham staff later this week. That's right. It's retreat time. It's retreat time. You know, this is one of the best things about this post-pandemic Zoom world that we live in is that, uh, like so many organizations, that has encouraged us to get together in person more often now that, you know, we don't come into the office very often.
2: That's right. That's right. And uh, we're not doing trust falls. Um, I've seen the agenda. We're we're, we're not. We're going to skip that this year.
0: Let's see. <laughs> you just haven't read the agenda closely enough. <laughs> It's camouflaged. That that's okay. We're still going to do some some. There, there's some hokey retreat like activities baked in there. So don't don't worry. But we are going to have a good time in downtown Cincinnati, which I'm excited about. It is a beautiful city. I don't know, Amber, uh, David, have you guys been to Cincinnati?
1: I have not. I, I I have Fordham to thank for all the wonderful tour of the Upper Mid Atlantic that I'm getting in my in my mid age. Wait,
0: like, the Upper Mid Atlantic? Very... What do they mean the Midwest?
1: The Midwest. Wasn't
0: well, it the Mid-Atlantic? Isn't that what you're It's uh, Cincinnati? No, I mean, it's the Ohio River Valley. Check your map, Mr. Uh, your students didn't know where their continents were. Uh, anyway, well, Amber, what is on the research agenda today?
2: All right. We have a new report from MDRC. We're going to be looking at New York City's P-TECH Nine through fourteen schools. These P-TECH schools have gotten a lot of attention in the CTE space, so it's kind of uh, kind of excited to, to read this study. A little backdrop backdrop first. Uh, since twenty ten, New York City has opened a total of nine Tech, nine fourteen schools. They enroll kids from grades nine through two years of post secondary education. The model is all schools have a three-way partnership among a high school, a community college, and an employer. Uh, They also offer one or more college degrees at the affiliated community college in the fields related to the work of the industry partner in hopes of creating that lovely word called pipeline uh, into specific high demand industries. Uh, The students participate in CTE coursework, Work based learning opportunities such as apprenticeships and college classes like dual enrollment courses during the six year program. Uh, The study itself includes seven P Tech schools. They were open between 2011 and 2016, and they use a lottery based random assignment design in which students were randomly offered or not offered an opportunity to attend a P Tech 914 school due to the schools all being oversubscribed. Uh, the sample includes ninth grade cohorts of students who were offered admissions to the schools between 2013 and 2017, whether or not they enrolled. So it's an intent to treat analysis. And then you've got the staggered nature of these school openings. Um, so you've got kids in here that could have been followed for between four and seven years. Again, beginning with their ninth grade year, so that the students reached the end of four years of high school between 2017 and 2021. Uh, and just a little more background, the students who applied to these schools were predominantly black and Hispanic and low income. All right, key findings. Students in the p nine through 14 group were 38 percentage points more likely to have had an internship during four years of high school than students in the comparison group. After four years of high school, we had 46% of students in the p group had dual enrolled in at least one college level course, compared with 20% of kids in the comparison group. Seven years after entering high school, students in the p group were five percentage points more likely to have completed an associate's degree. Uh, interestingly enough, impacts were primarily driven by young men. 13% of young men in the p group completed an associate's degree compared with 3% of young men in the comparison group. There were no significant differences between the two groups and the percentage of students who graduated high school after four years. They did a bunch of cost-effective analyses that, I don't know, basically inconclusive. I'll leave it at that. And then they also dug into pre and post COVID cohorts. So they compared the kids who were able to complete all four years of high school before pandemic and those who were enrolled in their fourth and third grade years of high school during the pandemic. And they found no significant differences in credits earned between those cohorts. And they also found no significant impacts on some of those other outcomes. And then they have this big section where they say, you know, this is not generalizable, um, a lot of these students were still in the sample at, in post-secondary education at the time of the study that the, by the time the study ended. So some of the kids were who had completed two-year degrees were in the pursuit of a four-year degree. They also said the pandemic you know hampered access to in-person internships. So maybe results could have been even more promising, you know, if not for this crazy thing called a pandemic. Um, But they also said that, you know, admission systems there makes it really hard to change schools after the initial ninth grade lottery. So if you're not a good fit, it's really hard for a kid to say, hey, this is P-TECH thing isn't good for me after all. Um, You know, then you've got less robust public transportation in other places, You've got less employers and partners available to support schools. And then uh, New York also does this weighted per student uh, funding for students who are enrolled in the P-TECH schools through those two years of post-secondary ed. You know, so obviously, maybe you don't have that elsewhere. Um, But still, I don't know, given all those caveats, uh, I still think the bottom line for me was that it was a model that could make a lot of sense. And we still need to figure out how to continue to refine it and help it to work in other settings.
0: But is it fair to say, I mean, I, these findings, I mean, positive, but not huge. Not right? huge. That's right. Which I guess I'm a little disappointed by in that, uh, you know, p it's gotten a lot of attention, a lot of buzz. Uh, and it, it, you know, my view for good reason. I mean, it seems like a super cool program. And this notion of Fixing the leaky pipeline, you know, making sure kids don't fall out of the pipeline to college between high school and college because they're in the same school or the same program all the way through grade 14, so to speak. I don't know. I thought that had a lot of potential. And it seems like it helps a little bit, but not a ton. I don't know. Maybe it was a pandemic. Maybe it would have been more, more encouraging. David, what?
1: So many bubbles to burst, Mike, (laughs)
0: just one after the other, your whole career is just
1: one. It's just one bubble after another. I mean, it's I think it's I think Look, it's good, right? It's good. I don't know. It's a tough problem.
2: I mean, these kids were I mean, they weren't a lot of them were not going to enroll in college, you know, to begin with. So it's not as if we're looking at a a regular post-secondary intervention you know, where you've got, you know, you could expect a lot of kids, you know, might might intend to go to college. So anyway, I, I still think that we got to keep that in mind in terms of the sample that we're looking at here.
0: No, that's fair. So th- these are kids who what, are, are not super high achieving. And, right. you know, we don't have a lot of great examples of high school reforms that work for that group of kids. So if, if this had some positive impact, you're right. Incremental progress is progress.
1: Yeah. yeah, the bit about cost effectiveness was intriguing. It it's expensive. Maybe I missed that. It it costs a lot to do this.
2: Uh well I mean it, it was inconclusive. That was a little different when they looked at it by cohort. So yeah, it it got You know, and and yeah, I mean, obviously, if the kids are going to go, it depends on what you're comparing it to. But if you intend for them to get two years of post-secondary schooling, it's going to be expensive, you Mm. know, compared to an intervention that doesn't have that baked into the intervention. Okay, right.
0: And it's hard to think about that. I mean, I'm trying to get your head around that. And is it, you know, it's the New York taxpayers paying for that maybe here instead of federal taxpayers if they had gone I've uh, gotten a Pell Grant, you know, I and mean, this is where my my lack of higher ed expertise uh, makes my head spin a little bit. But uh,
2: yes, I don't know who's paying for it. But yes, it is. There. If they keep going two years, it's getting paid for.
0: Well, progress better than nothing. All right, gang. Hey, that's all the time that we have for this week. And so until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.